On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, Scott Radley in for Rick Zamperin today. We're going to talk to John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer, about the inquiry that, or the report on the inquiry that has now been released about the Red Hill Valley Parkway. What does this mean for Hamilton going forward? Where does this go from here? There are lots of issues in it. We will get into as many of them as is possible. We're going to talk to a local person on a much happier note. A musician who set out to write the first Hallmark musical, Christmas Hallmark Christmas movie. You know what I'm saying. That didn't turn out, but something else really good did. We will explain what that is. We'll talk about Hamilton's housing situation and a weird sense of optimism. That's an interesting one. Uh, YouTube and Spotify have both come out with what you've been listening and watching over the last year. We'll get into that one. And what about universities? Should universities, should the province be doubling or increasing in a large way its funding for universities. We'll talk about all those things and much, much, much more after this. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday morning, shortly after we wrapped, the report for the Red Hill Creek Judicial Inquiry was released. And it was long, almost a thousand pages. And ultimately we learned that relatively low, that's a quote, relatively low friction likely contributed to some accidents on the Red Hill Creek Parkway. And we learned that a report was buried or at least not released, whatever word you want to use. And a few other things. I want to bring in John Best, a publisher of the Bay Observer Morning. John, how are you this morning? Just fine. Thanks, Scott. When I, the reason I mentioned those two things and a few others is because it seems as though the essential ingredients of what we learned yesterday were really essentially things we knew before this probe started. So what did we get for $28 million? Well, you probably didn't get $28 million worth of anything, but what you did get, I think, was a kind of a peak. uh, I would almost look at this as a, a management consulting report in the sense that you know, it's like when you go to the doctor, get an x-ray for a bad back, and then they find something else. And, and that's kind of what happened here. Um, it, it really pointed to a, a, just a dysfunctional um, public works department, quite frankly, where you had several branches of that department responsible for various aspects of the Red Hill. And, and they simply weren't communicating with each other. And... Uh, and, and then you had an individual who was named in the in the inquiry, uh, Gary Moore, who was the head of the engineering department, which was really responsible for building the highway, designing and building the highway. And uh, then you had the traffic operations department who took over the highway once it was built. And that's where the real problem was. So uh, there was uh, the information between those two was pretty much non-existent. It wasn't just the... Uh, the trade wind report that was kept from the operations people. But um, somehow after the highway was turned over to the city, to the traffic department, uh, Mr. Moore continued to have a very strong uh, hold over all the information related to the highway. And, And you even saw consultants who had been hired by the other division to provide advice, still checking in with, with Mr. Moore so it was a, a very dysfunctional system. Um, the other thing about the trade wind report, 
just to put it out there is it was not it was not a an alarm bell with with you know flashing red lights it did recommend further friction testing it said you know the friction seems to be low in spots and you need to do some more testing but it was worded in a very matter of fact way and at the end of the day i think there's a whole litany of problems beyond that report even though the report became the reason for the 28 million dollar inquiry yeah, and, and you know, the, well, the report, I would suggest one other thing, too, as I was thinking about this um, leading into this, this report, the, the decision to hold the inquiry came about a year or so after council had been just hammered publicly because of Sewergate, because it didn't release the Sewergate uh, findings with the leak. And they decided then, well, we're going to be totally transparent about everything. At least that was the the position that was taken. I don't know that we ever have this inquiry as opposed to just some sort of other study if Sewergate doesn't happen. This seems like it was the overkill of overkills that we are going to go down this path because we want to show we're not hiding anything. Take away Sewergate, we may not have spent $28 on this. I think you're probably right, although the, the other thing about the Red Hill Inquiry is that there were human deaths involved, uh, which there weren't with uh, Sewergate. So I think there was a, a heightened level of sensitivity, but there's no question. Council took a, a beating on uh, Sewergate, and, and the interesting parallel there, Scott, is that uh, actually uh, Mr. Justice Siegel, when he, he, he said that even after uh, council was informed uh, about the uh, trade win report. He felt that the report to council uh, was overly skewed by the legal department and the communications department and didn't pay enough attention to the, um, you know, to the accident toll and the human toll and the safety issue. So, you know, it, it, it really shows uh, you, you got to city here you got a corporation with 8000 employees and and i think what you're seeing uh almost incidentally is um just a you know a need for more coordination between departments we're spending all this money 2 billion a year and and there clearly uh needs to be um, a, a better information share at the top level and I don't think it's happening. Uh, I was going to say. I was going to say. Do you believe that anything has changed since this that would fix that would have said that this has all been fixed? I'm not confident of that, Scott. I, uh, I know the city issued a news release yesterday saying they're taking this all very seriously and they've already implemented some changes. But we're going through a period of churn right now. We have a uh, a, a city manager that is yet to be hired. A lot of it will rest on that city manager, and I'm. And, and now that we have the strong mayor uh, system uh, where the mayor has a lot of say in who gets that job, I would say that that's got to be something that should be almost job one for that new city manager. Forget about all these social issues. That city manager has probably got to take a really hard look at, at the whole organization and, and come up with uh, some kind of a plan that makes it function a little better. Uh, it, look, there's no question that whether, whether it's Sewergate, whether it's this, whether it's the LRT situation that's dragging on, whether it was the stadium, I mean, you can go back and there is plenty of reason for people who have lived here for any period of time to have doubts and uh, a lack of trust in what goes on at City Hall. That's, that's, that's just reality. If you've lived here, it's not hard to see why people would be skeptical and cynical about what happens down there. 
Well, and I've, I've said this before, I'm not sure within the municipal sector, uh, the bureaucratic sector, I'm not sure that the skill set to fix uh, these systemic problems necessarily even exists. Um, you know, in, in the public sector, your, your credibility and your prestige is based on how many people report to you in some ways. And uh, that seems to be part of the problem here. Very big department and uh, not a lot of coordination below the top level. Uh, before we go here, and I wish we had uh, like another three hours to talk about this, we could easily do this. The reality is that when the word misconduct is included in this report with everything else, it seems almost inevitable that we're going to have lawsuits. It's, I mean, I'd be shocked if there were not lawsuits that follow this, which is going to cost taxpayers, not just the 28 million that we're paying for this, not just the legal fees, but potentially damages. This could be an incredibly costly thing to taxpayers, this whole story. There's, uh, I think about 10 lawsuits underway now, Scott. So yeah, that's definitely happening and more could come. We'll be talking about this for a while because, as I say, uh, I expect that there, we've already heard from lawyers in town that, uh, that things are looming and, uh, yeah, this is, um, your tax dollars at work, at least they will be if they haven't already, 28 million plus, 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 uh, John Best, pr uh, publisher of the Bay Observer. Always appreciate having you on, John. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Yesterday we were talking with the city about its new heating, its warming plan for those who are outside and need somewhere to go to get warm when it's a night or a morning or a day like today. And they don't necessarily have somewhere to go. Well, interestingly, uh, among the plans to open up a few rec centers and have a warming bus, that's not all that happens in the city. There are also private places, churches and other organizations that are stepping up to do this, uh, to step in and fill some of the gaps that maybe are left behind that the city can't cover for everything. Renee Wetzelar is Executive Director of St. Matthew's House, joins us now. Renee, how are you this morning? I'm very well. How are you this morning? Scott? Terrific. Thank you for doing this. This is, uh, so, so you are, um, right now there's an expanded, uh, or there's a partnership between St. Matthew's House and Christ Church Cathedral. Uh, with support from Hamilton Out of the Cold, with uh, 541 Hamilton Eatery and Exchange, all getting together to help with this. Why? If the city is stepping up to add some new things, why do we still need other places like yours that are private to also step in? Well, we know that there won't be enough spaces across the city generally. And last year we had you know many experiences where people were left out of the cold and so this year, uh, the city came forward with a proposal to say who out there in the community uh, can step in where we can't. So we have a partnership with uh, Christchurch Cathedral. They've been operating what's called the Cathedral Cafe now for a few years. It's a drop-in space, low barrier, and people can come in, get something to eat, and uh, have a, um, you know, a visit with someone or something like that. But it's been just very sporadic, two or three days a week. This will allow for expanded service, uh, real meals, warm meals, um, some social service supports on hand to help people if they need navigation somewhere, or just someone to sit and listen to them as they um, sit out the cold weather. 
And we know that sometimes people in these spaces want to be engaged, but we also know that there are times that people just want to be left alone. So this will give people that opportunity to come inside out of the cold, no matter whether it's a cold alert or not, by the way, and uh, just be around people and have community. You are, uh, tell people who don't know, and I mean, St. Matthew's House has been around for a long time, but for those who don't know about St. Matthew's House, uh, can you give us the 30-second Reader's Digest version of what it's all about? No problem. Uh, St. Matthew's House is located in the lower city of Hamilton. We operate two child care centers um, for kids zero to four, and then we operate uh, before and after school programming as well. But further to that, we operate a senior support program where we do emergency food delivery, eviction prevention support, and generally help seniors navigate, um, you know, where they can't find help. We also have a paralegal on staff who helps with the eviction prevention support. We also support the street outreach team for the city of Hamilton. So each and every day there are folks on our team who are out supporting people who are living outside checking on people who live in encampments and make sure that they're connected to the supports that they need. So basically we're out everywhere, not quite 24 seven, but we, uh, we put a pretty big muscle in to support the vulnerable folks in the city. You know, it, it, it strikes me, uh, and just the name St. Matthew's house, um, the, the history, as I understand it, the history is with the Anglican diocese and, um, this particular project is connected with Christchurch Cathedral. Uh, we know downtown there uh, through, you know, Philpot Church, which is not connected to you, but they have the Vine, which is in that area. When you hear people sometimes say, you know, that uh, churches don't do anything or they're just whatever, it, it seems that when you really look at it, there is an awful lot of stuff that is being done by churches in the city beyond just having Sunday services in this regard, stepping out and helping out with people who need stuff. There is a whole network of services in faith communities across the city. I mean, I have a out-of-the-cold program in the church next door to where I live. And so we see these things, you know, happen all over the place. People step up, you know, where they can and in places uh, where they feel comfortable. And sometimes in their faith community, that's where it is. I mean, it's not only in Christian faiths, you know, it happens within the Jewish community, within the Muslim community, Hindu community, Sikh community, they all do it differently. And so um, Christchurch Cathedral happens to have a big hall and a big heart and wanted to really figure out how they could work with us uh, together to uh, lean in because we know the cold is coming. We've already seen some cold days. It's cold this morning. And we know people will be looking for help. And uh, so at least we can do one tiny thing. It's not a big part of the solution, but it is, you know, one tiny thing. And you mentioned the warming bus earlier. We will be staffing that warming bus. I'm not sure if that came through with Rob yesterday, but um, we will providing the uh, support. So we will have staff on the bus every night uh, traveling the circuit with the driver. No, I mean, the thing that I love about this is that I think a lot of times people now say, oh, well, it's up to the government to solve all of our problems. And clearly, you know, the government has a role to play in solving some problems, but governments have shown they, it's too big a a project, it's too big a thing to solve everything. We need other groups and other private citizens and private 
corporations and organizations to step up and fill some of the things which you're doing. If we wait for government to do everything, it'll never, ever get done. We need other people to be involved. I agree. And, uh, you know, faith communities have stepped up for many, many years, but we need to recognize that there is a broader uh, representation of faith communities in Hamilton now doing it. Um, But what we're trying to demonstrate is how you can bring faith communities together with a not-for-profit charitable organization and do make a little bit of a dent together uh, with our expertise as a social service agency and their expertise is being hands on the ground. It's a great match. I forgot to ask right off the top, is this new, is, is this something you've been doing before or is this a brand new concept for you? The Warming Center is a brand new concept for us. We have had staff who worked on the various warming centers, particularly during COVID. So we're really leaning on that expertise in terms of determining how we're going to uh, move forward on this one. Well, good for you for doing it because it's uh, it's certainly obviously, as we saw last year, needed. And as I say, uh, anyone who just decides we're just going to wait for government to solve everything is going to be waiting a long time. So uh, good for uh, St. Matthew's and Christ Church and all the rest of them for getting involved. Uh, that's Renee Wetzel, our Executive Director of St. Matthew's House. Thanks for the time today. Thank you so much. You know, again, I don't want to be dumping on government. That's not what this is about. But the problems are simply too big for governments to resolve. We've seen that again and again and again and again, and they're getting bigger. And so, you know, again, good for St. Matthew's House, good for Christ Church Cathedral, good for 541 Eatery, um, all getting involved, as I say, downtown right by the uh, First Ontario Centre. There's the Vine there's Philpot Church, there's others that are, and those are just some examples. Like there's lots, as, as Renee said, there's, you can go all over the city and you will find things that faith communities are doing to step in and do some stuff. So good work by all of them, because uh, clearly that work needs to be done and uh, they're there to do it. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. What we learned about something else though, in the last little while, last day or so, report has come out about the Canadian housing market. Now we are always talking about housing in this area because it's such an issue. Yet it seems that when you look at the 2024 housing market outlook report, people are still very optimistic about housing, about owning a home, about getting into this. Conrad Zarini is the broker of record with Re- with uh, Remax Escarpment joins us now. Conrad, how are you this morning? I'm fantastic, Scott. I can't complain. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I appreciate this. Well, apparently, you know, we all are complaining about housing. We're all, <laughs> and with, with, with reason, I'm not suggesting yep. for a second that we're not. And yet when you ask people, are you optimistic about the market? Do you want to get into the market? Do you think you can get into the market? Do you believe the housing market is a good investment? All those things. It seems as though pretty much everybody or most are saying yes. Yeah, there's no question. I think we're at a tipping point in terms of the housing market in Canada. I think... We've seen this trough. We've seen a huge uh, price adjustment. And now we're seeing a lot of money still sitting on the sidelines, uh, waiting for a certain sign. And we've seen two pauses with the Bank of Canada. We'll probably see another pause on Wednesday. The economic numbers in Canada are pretty bleak in terms of could we, we could be in a recession. We might see a quarter point uh, drop in Q1 of 2024. And that shows optimism in terms of the market. And uh, it's a perfect storm. Like I, I always say, kids and millennials are about a quarter of the population in Canada. They're in that 
family creation age. They can't live in their parents' basements forever. They're starting to create families, and they have to move on, no matter what's going on in terms of interest rates. They'll be really strategic. So, 73%, according to this poll, are confident homeownership is the best investment. That You know, it's probably not all that surprising, except when I hear the best investment. I mean, there's a lot of different places you can put your money in, RRSPs for the future and save on taxes or this or that or the other. And according to this poll, uh, uh, average prices are expected to increase only half a percent in 2024. That doesn't sound like the best investment. And yet long-term, I suppose, and the perception is, yeah, you want to make your money, you put it into housing. Well, yeah, no question. Long-term, we've, uh, we've, housing has surpassed the, the S&P 500 and uh, the TSX uh, you know, for, for a very, very long time. And people know it and they love it and... and I'm a firm believer in equity and enjoyment. I think a home uh, serves those two masters. And yeah, we'll, look, we're we're just probably um, like I said, millennials. Millennials have a, a, an effect like the baby boomers had in the mid '80s, and I feel that in the, the middle of this decade, we're going to see them really coming on stream and and buying. And you're going to see those longer term growth rates uh, occur. Now we've all talked about new construction, and we're short about 5.8 million homes according to CMHC, that's a huge mountain to climb. And uh, because of scarcity and simple economic supply and demand, you know, existing housing is going to do uh, going to fare well in the, in the next uh, five to 10 years. And I think that's, that's what Canadians understand. And that's what they're, they're banking on. One other thing to point out here, and that is looking at the report from 2002 to 2003, the average Hamilton home price in 2002 sold for 902000 In 2003, up till this point, sold for eight hundred and three. It's $100,000 down. Again, uh, it, does, it hasn't deterred clearly people from seeing this as a great investment, even though there has been a drop in the value. Well, I think we had unprecedented times. You know, the pandemic and what that did to housing and how quickly and rapidly it rose followed by, I don't know, I've lost count how many interest rate hikes we've had. It's been unprecedented in terms of, yeah, enough, right? So, you know, again, the confidence of the Canadian consumer during this uh, last 18 to 24 months, uh, you know, has been been, uh, weary uh, in terms of that. So, but at this point, I feel that, uh, you know, when we're at, Everybody's trying to gauge, you know, gauge where the bottom is. I think we're here, and I think Canadian consumers understand that we're at the bottom, and uh, and they're looking for uh, an upswing. And you got to remember, thirty percent of people don't have mortgages. These people have been sitting on the sidelines waiting for some sort of a price adjustment, like we like we finally saw in the last uh, year, and they're waiting to to find some great value out there. So you got to remember, not everybody's tied to interest rates. So. There's going to be some very interesting times uh, ahead of us in terms of the real estate industry. That is Conrad Zarini. He is the broker of record with REMAX Escarpment. Uh, You can find what we've been talking about at blog.remax.ca, and you can then find the Canadian housing market outlook there. Uh, Conrad, thanks for doing this this morning. Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. What is the music that we listen to and podcast that we listen to most? Spotify has come out with its list. You can find out what are the songs, what is the music, who are the artists who people have been paying attention to and listening to and grooving to this year. Eric Alper is a publicist and music commentator, friend of the show. We love having him on. Eric, how are you this morning? I'm good. Um, I'm a little bit depressed after I looked Uh-oh. through my own Spotify wrapped and realized that I, I think I need some help. Oh, why is that? 
Um, bec- you know, I love Spotify rap by the fact that it really, it tracks my listening habits throughout the entire year to develop all these results. And I think if somebody didn't know me, they would think that I, I am an unhappy, sad soul that is without direction. And I think my music, and I think my music kind of reflects that. It's very bizarre because I'm really, I'm a happy kind of a guy. Yeah. I see. I'm, I'm with you, not necessarily with the sad music, but I would probably, I don't have Spotify. I don't use Spotify, but Mm. I would, if I use this, I'm sure people might look at this and think you are weird with the <laughs> eclectic, like one day it's ACDC and the next day it's, uh, something classical and the next day it's something really old and like, there's no rhyme or reason to what it yeah, is ever. Yeah. It, it, it's like ABBA versus nine inch nails and they can both basically, you know, I know that there's people out there listening going, oh, how did he know my playlist? Um, But, you know, if you take a look at the Spotify 2023 rap results for Canada and the U.S., because they're pretty similar, um, we're we're still we're still damaged. (laughs) We're still having a little bit of problems with life. And that's okay because when you have Morgan Wallen and Miley Cyrus and SZA and Rima, um, uh, in the in the top four, uh, there's a lot of very downtrodden, wistful, yeah. member you know, remembering songs that uh, that are the most popular this year, according to Spotify. Well, and it makes sense that there would be a bunch of stuff that was maybe a little down or a little. I mean, this has yeah. been a another year where there's been a lot of reason, or even if there's not a lot of reason, a lot of feeling like it's not, you know. Uh, it doesn't feel, somebody said, I think it was my kids uh, a few months ago, said all that music from the 80s was also like upbeat. And it's true. You go back and you look at 80s music and it's all yeah. happy and joyous. And today it's all sort of bleat. Not all. I mean, I don't want to be, but. Which is so strange, right? When you think about it where, you know, the 80s were a lot of people living under the shadow of a potential nuclear war. Um, you had a very much a cold war, the Berlin wall being there, but then you had like honeymoon suite singing about wave babies and you have sweet dreams and, and all, you know, Duran Duran singing about the reflex. And it just seemed like there were a lot of upbeat songs. Well, music was an escape. It seemed. Yeah. Right. Where where now it's a reflection of the time. Then it was an escape. And I don't know why that changed. Um, I, I, I will tell you that in the last three and a half years, the amount of songs that I'm working in terms of the the PR have been slower. They're they're more about isolation, loneliness, breakups. Yeah. Um uh, you know, those kind of things. That, and it's no surprise, you know, with COVID and with the with the economy and, and politics. Um it, it would be very um read the room kind of criticism if somebody were to come out with a song that is completely um you know uh, uh, happy but then every july but then it goes in waves every july but 4th again in america it, party in the usa is still like the number one song for 48 hours but eric your, your point is absolutely right about read the room and yet you know i i heard someone talking yesterday about uh, the song 99 Luftballons by nena mm. which is you know in the cold war era yeah, and it was, if you listen to it, it's not the happiest lyrics, but it's a really happy song. The, the lyrics don't necessarily reflect the tune or the vibe of the song. Somehow, as I say, we have 
musicians are, it's a different place now. I want to get to this list though really quickly. So around here, Morgan Wallen last night, right near the top, Miley Cyrus, Flowers, uh, um, Kill Bill, um, third, uh, Selena Gomez, Calm Down, Creepin' by Metro Boomin, um, a bunch of other ones. And then if we look at that, that's sort of more locally, globally, top songs globally, Flowers by Miley Cyrus, number one. Kill Bill by... Uh, um, so Thank yep. you. Uh, As It Was by Harry Styles. Seven by Jungkook. And Ella Bella Sola by uh, Eslabon Armado. Uh, and you know what? If you ask me to sing many of these... <laughs> yeah, a, lo- a lot of global music, which is what yeah. Spotify has been able to do, um, you know, with the reaction of, of fans around the world with Latin music, which is um, creeping up to be the number one most listened to genre. Yeah. Certainly K-pop um, from Korea is huge with BTS and Blackpink being two of the biggest groups in the world. It's it's amazing. I mean, the big story is the fact that Morgan Wallen not only has two albums in the most streamed albums in Canada with One Thing at a Time being number one and Dangerous, the double album being yep. at number five. And then, of course, he's got Last Night, the most streamed song, zero Grammy nominations. And, you know, in case of people don't know the story about Morgan Wallen. Yeah, he had a controversy. Idol consistent. Yeah. yeah, you know, he... He said, uh, you know, he said the N word during a drunken video stupor um, and the industry has really never forgave him. But for the that. people have people, the people have, in fact, you know, it, you know, it, it just goes to show you that a little bit of racism might go a long way. Well, I, I wouldn't put people in America. I, I, I don't know if it's that. I just wonder if people just look and go, you know, eventually we're going to forgive you because we like your yeah. music. Regardless, uh, we got to run the shock of that list. Top songs globally, not in the top five Taylor Swift, although she is number six. So yeah, uh, there you go. Back to my Spotify list now with um, <laughs> Edith PF next to ACDC and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll go from there. Uh, Eric, <laughs> Alper, always appreciate you doing this. Thank you. Thanks, man. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If you are like pretty much every other person, I would think you at times will find yourself on YouTube for whatever reason, whether it's for entertainment or as I have more and more in recent days and weeks and months been doing YouTube is a fantastic thing when you have to fix something around the house and you have no idea because you're not handy. There's always a YouTube video showing you how to fix something. It's one of the, if YouTube has served no other purpose, it has allowed me to fix things around the house or find a solution for problems that I otherwise would have had to call someone to come fix. But it's not just for that. There are millions, I don't know, billions maybe of videos that are on YouTube and YouTube has put out its list of what are the top viewed videos and moments from YouTube Canada this year. Zaytun Murji is head of communications with YouTube Canada, joins us now. Zaytun, thank you for doing this. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. Excited to be here. Well, I was sure that number one on the list would be, you know, how to fix my furnace as the most viewed thing on. And apparently, <laughs> I'm the only one or one of the few, but uh, no, it's not there. But it is an interesting list that I would have, n- well, except for maybe when you told me, if I saw the list, I might have said, okay, there's one or two here that mm-hmm. I might have guessed in retrospect. I would have never guessed this list until I saw it. And we'll go through it. But I mean, when you, do you know... Before we even get to what the list was, do you in June or July, or do you have a pretty good idea what the ones are, or is it always a surprise at the end of the year? 
So there are a few pop culture moments that always seem to break through. And so, for example, the top video this year is Rihanna's halftime show. And last year, we also saw that one of the top videos was the halftime show with um, Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre. Right, from Los Angeles, from the Super Bowl. Yeah, exactly. So so there are moments like that that always seem to make the list. And then there, there are ones that really stump you and surprise you. So, for example, we saw two creators that um, went to the house from The Conjuring and stayed there for a week and they chronicle their experience. And that video only came out in October and still made the top list. So it is, uh, you know, pretty incredible to see the amount of people that tuned into that for it to still make the list. So just to answer your question, in June, sometimes we still have no idea what's going to break through. And when you look at this list, and let me read it really very quickly, uh, Rihanna's halftime show, uh, a, a video by Mr. Beast. If people know YouTube, they know who he is. Uh, amazing invention, a drone that will change everything by Mark Rober, who is the guy we were just mentioning him yesterday, coincidentally, who did the Twitter bombs for Porch Pirates. That's what he may be most famous for. Um, yep. uh, spicy Hot Ones, a Hot Ones video. Again, people I think know what Hot Ones was. Sidemen Charity Match 2023. Uh, the Adele Final Carpool Karaoke with James Corden. Uh, a golden buzzer from Simon Cowell from AGT, uh, the ho- Conjuring House, and uh, Kie L'Imposture. Uh, 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 I don't even know what that one is. Anyway, some <laughs> of these, the thing that strikes me is some of these are predictable in that they are very well-established AGT or uh, Mr. Beast or something, but there's some of them that just are out of nowhere. Yes. And I think that what that shows us is that, you know, fandom is becoming a really, really big thing on YouTube. And what I mean by that is Canadians who have uh, a strong, strong affinity with their favorite creators or celebrities are coming to watch these videos and racking in views, whether it's watching them over again, sharing them, kind of watching clips, watching, um, side interviews like there's so many ways in which Canadians are coming to YouTube to really engage in their favorite celebrities because when you go through that list the other thing that you'll see is that a lot of these um a lot of these celebrities had really big years this year you know so like Pedro Pascal in his Hot Ones interview I mean he's known for the Mandalorian he went on to celebrate his third season of the show and he also hosted SNL this year and what fans loved about it in all the comments was that they said that Pascal was so relatable like they just loved watching him go through all these wings and be so naturally honest about you know how hard it was to continue an interview Mm. while he's crying and his mouth is on fire I don't know if you've sat down and thought this through yourself, but is there a common denominator? Like what's the magic elixir that leads to something catching the traction that it needs to land on this list? Is there one thing? Well, Scott, that is the million dollar question. But what I will say is that there are a few things that we always see come through, especially in the list in Canada. And that is um, an emotional connection often that really breaks through. So, you know, you mentioned the golden buzzer. Putri Ariani, who was the 17-year-old blind Indonesian contestant, she has a dream to go to Juilliard. She came onto the show. She had this incredible voice. And Simon was so touched, he actually asked her to sing another song. And then she did an original that she wrote herself. And she finished in fourth place. We very often see these beautiful moments like this that really, really capture an audience, make the list. 
Yeah, I, as I say, I was like, even as I'm glancing at this, I'm. It's such a mixed bag, and I'm trying to think yeah. what is the common and emotion. Okay, for and, sure. And, and one other I'll add there, Scott, is music. We find that Canadians are so engaged with music content. So, like when you look at the that the Super Bowl halftime show is one of them. America's Got Talent. It was a a, a singing uh, competition. We also see the Adele final carpool karaoke, which is uh, you know part of it is also that it was the last carpool karaoke with James Corden for his show but it also is the two of them singing in their car for the majority of the video and Adele and James Corden the last time they did it eight years ago that was the most viewed video on the show's Mm. YouTube channel the two of them singing together we, we got to run, but you know, the one thing about this that uh, that always strikes me is if I had known mm-hmm. that simply having someone sit and eat hot wings with me <laughs> could be a top five YouTube thing and make me a ton of, how did we not, how did no one else think of making people just eat hot chicken wings and talking? It's, 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 it go, it's, it's a list that, uh, that makes you scratch your head. It's, uh, but it's, it's out there and, uh, the list of the best, uh, the, the biggest YouTube Canada videos of the year, uh, you can go and look it up. Uh, Zaitun Murji, head of communications for YouTube Canada. Thanks for taking time this morning. Thank you for having me. Take care. Uh, yeah. Who would have thought that just eating hot chicken wings was the secret? You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is a new report out that points to Ontario's universities, public universities, and suggests that we need to be funding them considerably more. Randy Robinson is the Ontario director and co-author of the report uh, through the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Joins me now, Randy, how are you this morning? I'm very good. Excellent. Thank you, Thank you for doing this. It's it's a it's an interesting one for sure because we've been hearing now for a number of months, and I know this is peripheral but not entirely. We've been hearing for a number of months uh, questions about foreign students and how many foreign students are in the country, and they of course bring huge money to Canadian universities. They pay higher tuitions, and questions from the federal government about whether that number needs to be looked at. That all ties into a lot of other things about what money is going into our universities. Oh, it absolutely does. Uh, I mean, the question of international students, they have become the cash cow for universities because the uh, province has uh, pretty much completely withdrawn from the funding of universities. You know, if you go back to the end of end of the 80s, say, uh, the province would provide about 78% of funding for universities. Now it's 24% of funding for universities. So in response to that, universities have looked for ways to uh, to uh, get more money. And the way they've done that is by increasing uh, tuition fees on international students and trying to attract as many international students as they can. Uh, you know, it's interesting. The federal government views international students as an export industry. In one of their recent reports, they talked about uh, the idea that international students bring in more export dollars than timber or auto parts. Uh, so they they view uh, international students as an industry. Uh, we would say that when you're asking people, doesn't matter where they come from, to pay forty thousand dollars a year in tuition when they're working on an undergraduate degree, that that's more in the category of exploitation. I mean, every country, every province uh, charges extra fees for international students uh, for reasons I think are obvious. Uh, but uh, Ontario is just over the top, absolutely. So when we talk about the, the when you talk about the money, the revenues, how much is through funding? I pulled up uh, just as an example. We're in Hamilton. Pulled up McMaster's financial report for twenty one twenty two. I don't believe the twenty two twenty three is out yet. Right. Yeah. Um, their total revenues 
in 21-22 was $1.2 billion. Uh, they ended up with an excess revenue of $53 million. That doesn't sound like, and I know it's one example, but that doesn't sound like an institution that needs a huge funding bump. Well, you have to look at the way the funding came along and what are the consequences of that funding. Uh, first of all, there is the issue of the exploitation of international students, which, which we think is very serious. There's also the issue of how universities have responded by cutting costs on labor. So now you have half of the course. Oh, did we lose Randy? We may have lost Randy. We'll try and reconnect with him and see if we can get this. Yes. So some of the, um, as I say, some of the numbers here, and and I'm glad Randy's going to explain it because looking at McMaster's financial report, it looks like things are pretty good. It would look like if you're bringing in a, 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 they wouldn't use the word profit because it's, it's not really a profit. It's an excess revenue, um, 53 million dollars in 21-22 over expenses, that would seem like something that would put them in pretty good stead. Now, that said, the year before, it was $232 million. So it is clearly down. Randy is back with us now. Sorry about that, Randy. Had a little technical yeah, problem. Not so, sure what happened. But um, yeah, no, I mean, you have the big universities in Ontario who are actually being able to respond quite well. And McMaster is certainly in that category, University of Toronto, York. Uh, they've been able to attract a lot of international students and bring in that money. But I think we have to look at the side effects of the general policy of reducing provincial funding. So you've got, as we've talked about, the exploitation of uh, international students. Uh, we still have higher tuition fees on average, uh, 24% higher than the national um, than the national average for domestic students. So students are bearing the burden. They're not getting the aid that they used to get. We used to have a high fee, high aid system. Now we just have a high fee system. Then you got to look at what's happening to contract faculty who are now teaching half of the courses across universities and they're getting paid a fraction of what the going rate is. Um, there's less funding for research. Um, across the country, provinces generally contribute about 18% of total research dollars to universities. In Ontario, that's below 7 so we've got less research. Uh, and the smaller universities are really feeling uh, squeezed because they don't have the ability to track international students. I mean, the difference between the University of Toronto or McMaster and Nipissing University is, sure. you know, night and day, right? So there are so many bad side effects to this policy that we really think that the province has to go back to its historical role of supporting public universities and not just let the market decide what's going to happen. One more really quick thing, Randy. We only got time for this. I wish we had a lot more. Um, if, if the province was to bump up its money that it's funding, can it do it in a way that says it's targeted? In other words, if all of a sudden the province was to give a huge new lump of sum to universities, my fear, and I think probably a lot of people, a lot of taxpayers' fears would be, well, then people working there would say, look, there's a lot more money, therefore we should be paid much more because there's a bigger pot and we, the university shouldn't just make this money. Is there a way to fund these where the money is going exactly to what you're talking about, to the research and to other things, not just to higher wages for those who are already there? Well, you know, one of the things that sometimes happens when governments talk is they equate low wages to efficiency, but there's no connection between low wages and efficiency. They're just low wages. And if you want people to be able to make careers in universities, and people do want to do that, then you have to pay decent wages. I think that goes without saying. 
That being said, the government is able to target funding to the places that they they want to put it. They can create strict rules. I mean, you saw what happened with uh, domestic tuition fees. They decreed that there would be, in 2019, uh, a 10% decrease in domestic tuition fees and a freeze ever after, and they forced the universities to respond to that. So the government certainly has control over how money is spent. The problem we face in, in Ontario is that our provincial funding of universities is so low that every other province in Canada is above average. We are dragging the average down, and we would have to double our provincial support in order to be average. Now, I don't think being average should be a stretch goal for Ontario, no, that's, but apparently that's, it is. Uh, that is Randy Robinson, Ontario Director and Co-Author on the report uh, for the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Look up policyalternatives.ca and you can find this full report. Randy, thanks for this. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Three years ago, I talked to a guy from Stony Creek who was in the process of not just writing a Hallmark Christmas movie, which, of course, anyone who's on TV at any time these days is going to stumble upon a Hallmark Christmas movie. It's impossible to miss them. But he was going to do something different. He was going to come up with the first musical Hallmark Christmas movie his name is Matt Stodelock, and he joins me now. Matt, how are you today? I'm doing great, Scott. How are you? I am well. So this, uh, it was called Chris Misses, very clever name. And uh, this thing was done. You had made it. You'd written the music with your girlfriend then, now wife, I understand. And you had filmed some scenes, some of the songs, so that maybe Hallmark or someone would see it. Didn't turn into a Hallmark Christmas movie. No, it didn't at that time. Uh, at the time, we were really reading the landscape of, you know, in the onset of COVID is when that all happened. And the only real industry that was still kind of trucking along was the film industry. And uh, we were working on that throughout the pandemic. But as the pandemic began to recede, we realized, you know, there really is a story here that was full of spectacle and family that really lended itself well to the stage. And we pivoted and decided to reform the show as a stage musical and it's having its world premiere this year in Toronto at the Winter Garden Theatre. Yeah, and you know, why I wanted to have you on because not just you're not just doing this as a play and good for all those people who write a play and put it on in a community theatre or whatever, but I mean, the Elgin Winter Garden Theatre is no small-time thing. Like, this is the big time that you've... It didn't turn into the movie, but it's turned into something equally gigantic. Yeah, we're, we're very fortunate and it, it really is only happening because of the great work of, you know, our creative team, our collaborators. Um, it, it's a true Hamilton story, too. Our set is built uh, by the expert artisans at Hamilton Scenic Specialties uh, in, in Dundas. So we're, we're, we're very fortunate. It all comes down to a team effort. Well, let's go back, though, for a second to when you decided to do this. And again, I want to tell people uh, the, the name of the play is Chris misses c-h-r-i-s-m-r-s you can find it at that.com if you want to find out about this the idea of doing initially a hallmark christmas movie there is a general feel behind those um i remember a, a writer a canadian writer who's been involved in those before says you basically take christmas and then christmas the crap out of it i believe was his quote yeah. that's kind of what you did a little bit with your play with your story right Certainly. The real heart of it is the real inception of Christmas is came out of a reflection on tradition and what is the role that traditions play in our lives. Um, you know, during, I don't want to keep talking about the pandemic, but, you know, we weren't able to celebrate Christmas and the holidays in a traditional way. 
we were separated from our loved ones. And that was the real inception and catalyst for Christmases. And the show is a reflection of that. It's a multi-generational story. We have children, we have you know, old, older teenagers and adults, and all of them are grappling with what happens when Christmas is different that year. Um, and it, we see our characters kind of struggle with that and come around to it, but it really is a, 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 a a modern musical comedy that is great for everyone of all ages. How do you though, take something that you have, I've never created something like you have. Mm. How do you take an idea like this and then all of a sudden turn it into a full fledged big time stage presentation? Cause there's gotta be just an immense amount of work that goes into that. Certainly I'm on both sides of the table, both creative and producing as well, which is actually kind of the, more old-fashioned model of, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein had. They wrote their shows <laughs> and they uh, produced them themselves. So um, I guess the, the wheel of time is spinning again here. Um, but it is an immense amount of work. Um, fortunately, you know, I'm able to have my hand on both sides of the switchboard, both creatively and from the production, you know, financial side of things. Um, but it all comes down to your collaborators. I'm, I'm very lucky that my primary collaborator is my my wife. So uh, business meetings can happen uh, in the same room at any time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, you know, we, we wrote the story. I wrote the music. Kate wrote the lyrics. We wrote the story together. And that's the core germ of the, the entire endeavor. You know, you, you can't produce a show that doesn't work in terms of its bare bones. Um, but we're, I think we're very lucky to have a story that works, that audiences will like. Um, and see themselves reflected in the character. But from there, there's only so many hours in the day that Katie, my wife, and I can produce this. It, it truly comes down to our collaborators, you know, our choreographer, set designer, costume designer, uh, technical director, or stage manager. So it, it's a collaborative uh, effort, totally. How, though, do you, we only have a minute left here, how do you land it at a theater like this? Because, again, I, I could absolutely understand someone putting this together and it lands at a community theater, which would be great, but this is not that. How do you get to here? Well, it, it, it's it's a call to the Winter Garden and, and you know, kind of pitching yourselves and, and showing your, your story here and getting their interest to let you rent the space. And, you know, there there is a private fundraising round that happens as well to support the entire endeavor. Um, and we're very lucky to have a team that supports us, that, that believes in this story, that, you know, really wants to support this message of family and togetherness at the holidays and, and bring that into the world. Uh, his name is Matt Stodelak and the play Chris Misses. C-H-R-I-S-M-R-S, like the name Chris and then Mrs. as in Mrs. Chris, but backwards, uh, .com. If you want to find about it, find out about it, if you want to get tickets, uh, it is running very soon and for a stretch here before Christmas. Uh, Matt, listen, congratulations. Great to catch up. Great that this has turned into something, not exactly where it started, but something equally as cool. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much, Scott. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.